Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and we're here to promote and to defend public education. And by public education, and we say it every week, we remind you we mean it has to be public in purpose and outcome. Above all, public education must be publicly accessible. It must actually give the children a choice of a free, secular and universal education, and that means all the children of Australia and Victoria. It can be done. It is done in other, other countries and it used to be done in Australia. But in the current privatisation uh, climate, uh, we are in danger of losing this treasure that we have inherited from the past, our past generations, our forefathers. So we have to fight for it. And it must be the only one that is publicly funded because it is the only one that can be publicly accountable and our governments should be both responsible, our representative governments should also be responsible governments and taxpayers' money should go into the provision of a good public local school for every child in this state and in this country. Well, we know that the times are not propitious for this. And our press release 587 on our website at www.adogs.info reads as follows. Public education for sale. Mr Abbott tells us that Australia is open for business. And unfortunately there's a lot of evidence that he thinks and other people in the coalition and some people in the Labor Party too believe that public education is not open for business so much as open to be sold. Now the wholesale privatisation of public education and the realisation of public assets commenced by the Kennett government in Victoria in the 1990s has never stopped. Public school parents are discovering that what they took for granted as children a local public primary or secondary school has either disappeared or is in the process of being sold off. So much for the rhetoric of choice peddled by promoters of state aid and privatisation of public education. The only choice for many parents in Victoria is a fee-paying private school. After all, there is money to be made from insecure parents in search of a gold-plated ticket to heaven and the good job. In Victoria, surplus state schools are being sold off to meet a $225 million target. I'll say that again because that's a very interesting figure. In Victoria, at the current time, in the Treasury, 
and in the education department. State schools are being sold off to meet a 225 million target. And only half of those proceeds are returned to the education department. So that gives you 112.5 million. And yet, Merlino, our new Minister for Education, has promised 120 million to private schools to build new schools. So half of this 225 million target will come back to the education department, but it may not be for even our public schools if you sit and think about it. So these so-called surplus public schools are public property which has been paid for, subsidised and maintained by generations of taxpayers in this state and public school parents because public school parents have put millions and millions and millions into their local schools over the years. They are held in trust for future generations and their sale defies demographic trends, the rising birth rate and the possibility of the choice of a free, secular and universal education for Victorian children. And we all know of examples of this mismanagement because that's what it was. Kennett sold large numbers of inner inner suburbs, state schools in his um, fire sale of the 90s. And now there aren't enough state schools for these children because the people have moved back into the inner city and they are having babies. Now, um, so much for responsible or even representative government. The push to realise public school assets was revealed in Freedom of Information documents obtained by Our Children, Our Schools, which is an alliance of public education community campaigns. And uh, this information came into the age on the 23rd of February. And I think that we should be very grateful to these people, Our Children, Our Schools uh, campaigners, and also to the age for publishing this material. About 75 schools are currently deemed surplus in Victoria and many of the vacant sites are the result of school mergers. So what are they doing? They are selling off the land so that more residences can be built and the people will move into those residences and have children and there'll be no school for them, no public school for them. Now, around $131.6 million is expected to flow into the state government coffers this financial year alone from the sale of education assets, and $120 million of that has been earmarked for um, the building of new private schools. Current schools on the market include Norlane Primary School and the former Western Heights Secondary College, while the former Kialba Secondary College, former Calder Rise Primary School and the former Keeler Park Primary School are among a handful of schools being prepared for sale. Our Children, Our School spokeswoman, Sonia Terpstra, said that she was concerned that decisions about the future of schools were being driven by sales targets. Also, they're being driven by some of those friends of Mr Kennett who were in the advertising business. Remember Mr Kennett was in the advertising business and, of course, the um, estate agents, all of whom make quite a lot of money out of these sales. Sonia Terpstra says that if the impetus is to cash in assets rather than proper provisioning, something's quite wrong. The government will always be playing catch-up when provisioning for public schools 
if this is the case and our kids are caught in the crossfire by being crammed into overcrowded schools and classrooms. Well, perhaps Ms Terpstra hasn't woken up to the fact that perhaps the intention is that there won't be public schools in the future, only private schools in these areas. Um, perhaps she is being a little bit trusting of our governments because it's later than Sonia Terpstra thinks. Public money for private education means withdrawal of the choice of free education for all children. And if you want more information on that, you can have a look at the age of the 23rd of February and the article Schools Sold to Meet 225 Million Target. So you can see why it is that um, the dogs are here and still fighting for the right, the right of children, the right of children to have a first-class public education in this country. And of course, this is still possible. There are still excellent public schools, second to none, in our community. And uh, we have some very good teachers too uh, who are in these schools. But they are at the, uh, at the very front, in the very front, in, in what is in fact a battle for the future generation. And we must remember this, and we must think about our teachers, because at the moment, Mr Pine is going on and on and on about teacher training. What is it that makes a good teacher and a good school? These are the things that actually we should be thinking about and what is our objective in our education system for the society that we want our children to grow up in in the future and what we want actually for the future when they become parents themselves. These are the questions that Mr Pine and others really don't want to tackle. But we would like today uh, to go to a teacher who has been in the front line and who has written about it and he comes from 3CR and here he is. Well, I have great pleasure in introducing David McLean. Now David is a writer but he's also been a teacher and he feels very strongly about being a teacher and he also still teaches children. But his first love is literature and writing and I'm quite sure that 3CR listeners have heard his voice elsewhere when we're dealing with writers because 3CR deals with all sorts of things. Uh, that is cultural, non-cultural, political, you name it, we can do it here on 3CR. Now David is a well-known writer and he actually had something published in The Age and he's here to read it to you. Well, thank you very much for that. Yes, this article came out um, on Monday about being uh, a first-year teacher going into the classroom for the first time. It's sort of a, an, an image that we don't often see of teachers, of what they actually deal with. It's not all curriculum. So here we go. Nothing prepares you for teaching. Neither the well-structured academic courses nor the reality of classroom experience can actually train you for what you encounter. Echoes and recollections of my first year of teaching are still with me today and become part of a catalogue of reference when dealing with students. There are the mistakes you try not to repeat. There are the scenarios of behaviour and student attitudes you recognise and can confidently handle. But there is always something for which you cannot prepare or imagine. 
The Year 10 class in my first year of teaching had my measure. They could sense my lack of experience and played on it. Having someone flick notes under the door or throw something through the high corridor window while I was commencing the class was, and still is, a standard ruse. But it would set them off, leaving me attempting to regain control. Inviting the school's deputy, to whom I will always be grateful, into class, rectified the escalation of that problem. But it was the scenario much later in the year that left an indelible impression. I was given an extra, a supervision of someone else's class to cover an absence. It was my year 10 English class whom I taught. Not a problem, I thought. I can return the essays I had recently corrected. The class seemed settled. They had work to go on with and permission to read or complete set work from another subject. This, by the way, was in the days before mobile phones and iPods. I walked among the desks, returning work, and then ensconced myself at the teacher's desk, that refuge of authority. I don't like you. One of the students who had received an ordinary grade walked up to the desk and gave her opinion. I looked up but didn't say anything. I don't know why I didn't say anything, but both then and now I think it was the right thing to do. A slight twittering of amusement could be heard in the class. Was a confrontation coming? The girl in question returned to her seat, having had no response. The class returned to their respective tasks. I hate you. I looked up from my pile of correction. The girl had returned. She was escalating the situation. Rather than respond, I addressed the class calmly and told them to get on with their work. Many, though, wondered what was coming. The girl sat down again, but returned a third, and then a fourth time. Each time her opinion about me was expressed more forcefully. Something was definitely wrong. You've never seen someone commit suicide before. On her fifth return, she had my full attention. She charged out of the classroom. I was agape. Nowhere in the classes on educational methodology was I taught about such situations. You, I said, pointing to the nearest student follower. You, I said, pointing to another. Get the deputy. Either through sympathy or amazement, the class was united behind me. I could not leave the class unsupervised. Technically, I shouldn't have given permission for individual students to be out of class either. But it was the only thing I could think of at the time. The outcome was amicable for all parties. In a debriefing after the event said, oh yes, the family have a history of such behaviour. We didn't want to influence your opinion of her by telling you beforehand. Appropriate administrative procedures might have made me aware of those students with a behavioural problem. Those procedures, however, cannot tell me the exact nature of the scenario I will face or how to deal with it. Every day, teachers go into classrooms with the challenge of the unexpected. There will be the bland, boring days of routine, the frustration of disciplining irascible students, the challenges of coping with a wealth of personal problems that impinge on getting through to them a passion for the subject. And teachers will make mistakes. The really good teachers will worry about those mistakes. But every so often, there is a moment of magic, I remember talking to Jacko's mother on the phone. The lad was completely out of his depth academically and teachers regularly updated his parents about the progress he was or wasn't making. Ask him what he said in class. I could hear Jacko's voice in the background while I was talking with his mother. Ask him what he said. The most improved student, I said, when handing back an essay the day before, is Jacko.
he'd actually managed to pass. Others in the class were a mixture from A to D, but Jacko had passed his first essay. He'll remember that moment, and I'll remember the delight in his voice. And maybe that's what teaching is about. And that was an article in The Age. Uh, they've entitled it Agony and Ecstasy of a Teacher's First Year, Memories in the Making. It appeared on February the 16th in The Education Age. It's the uh, online version. But there are countless stories teachers have about uh, the encounters with students. And basically, education's not about assessment and marks. It's about that fostering of mm. uh, students' minds, culture, all those sorts of things, and how we manage or don't manage to get through to students at times. And uh, Joe Toscano does a program uh, called Radical Australia, and he only uh, asks a couple of questions, and essentially it's for people to talk about themselves. Every single person remembers a teacher. Every single person has one teacher that they remember who inspired them to do something or inspired them not to do something. Mm. Every person... But the number of good teachers you can count on one hand, and, and by good, someone you can identify with, and that's what education is about. If you, as a student, identify with somebody, then the whole world can open up in terms of their interests and an understanding and a passion mm. for a subject. And I have students that definitely didn't identify with me, those mm. with a mathematical or scientific mindset, but then those who loved literature, theatre, things mm. like that, sort of had a whole realm open up to them. So you can't win them all, and you just hope to get through to some and manage the others, basically. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR 855 AM, and we'll be right back after a little bit of music.
Well, that was um, a madrigal by Monteverdi. We're going back there into the 16th century, long, long before even the ideas of public education were, were born or thought of. But um, in fact, we're lucky, of course, that we don't live in the, in the 16th century, but we're still in the 21st century, hoping not to go back to those days before public education. Now, there are problems not just in the primary and tertiary and, and secondary se- sector. Our public universities are also under threat and our students are being threatened with the American system of being burdened for life with the debt for their education, with the user-pays mentality of our governments. They can't get the money in from the wealthy plutocrats plutocrats, so they try to get the money in from poor students for the rest of their life. But in America, there's a revolt on, and Dale's going to tell us about it. Thanks, Dean. I've got an article here by Vahini Vara entitled, A Student Debt Revolt Begins. The refusal of 15 students to pay back loans taken to pay for classes at a failed network of for-profit colleges could have far-reaching consequences. In the, in the autumn of 2013, Mallory Heine returned from a mission trip to Guinea with a plan to go into healthcare. She enrolled in classes at a for-profit college called Everest Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, expecting to graduate with a degree that would help her become a nurse. But after less than a year, she said, her instructors stopped showing up. Corinthian Colleges, the company that owned Everest, had admitted that its finances were in trouble and that it expected to go out of business. It later said it would shut down several campuses, including the one in Grand Rapids. Heine graduated but felt she had learned very little. When she tells people where she went, she told me, she gets sympathetic looks. She said, you go to school so they look at you and think, wow, this person must be educated. Not so they look at you and think, oh, this person went to Everest, they must be trash. Heine's student debts include more than $10,000 owed to the federal government and more than $10,000 in private loans. That's what remains after she repaid some of the interest on her debts while she was in college, in part by selling her, her own plasma. On Monday, Heine and 14 other people who took out loans to attend Corinthian announced that they were going on a debt strike and will stop repaying their loans. They believe that they have both ethical and legal grounds for what appears to be an unprecedented collective action against the debt charge to students who attended Corinthian schools. And they are also making a broader statement about the trillion dollars of student debt owed throughout the country. Corinthian was one of the world's largest for-profit operators of colleges. At its height in 2010, more than 100,000 students were enrolled in its schools, which operated under the names of Everest, Heald and Wyotech throughout the US and part of Canada. These days, the company can hardly be said to exist. After the past few years, the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Attorney General of California and the Attorney General of Massachusetts Massachusetts have brought separate lawsuits accusing the company of all kinds of bad behaviour, pressuring students into signing up for huge loans, misleading them about their prospects after graduation and strong-arming them into beginning to repay their private loans before they'd even graduated. 
Last year, Corinthian stopped filing financial reports with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and earlier this month, the Nasdaq stock market sent Corinthian a letter informing its officials, those who remain, that the business would be delisted. All 14 of Corinthian's Canadian campuses have been shut down. In the US, more than 50 campuses have been sold off and a dozen have been closed. Corinthian's downfall has come to be seen as a symbol of the ills of the for-profit higher education. The false promises of employment, the mounting student debt, the aggressive collection tactics. But for Corinthian students and graduates, the company's failure has had more practical repercussions. Most Corinthian students cover their tuition by taking out federal and private loans. That debt, it turns out, is far more resilient than Corinthian itself. Students and graduates of the company's schools are, by and large, expected to repay their federal student loans. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has negotiated for forgiveness of part of the private debt, but not all of it. For anyone, student loans are burdensome. A recent report by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that the student debt problem is so severe that it seems to be reducing the formation of new households a phrase often used as a euphemism for young people moving out of their parents' homes, and home ownership. Adding to that, students and graduates of Corinthian-owned colleges are finding that their degrees are all but worthless. When they try to transfer, they discover that other colleges won't recognise their course credits. And when they try to get work, they learn that employers are not at all impressed by Corinthian coursework. In December, a group of Democrats in the Senate, led by Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, wrote to the Education Secretary, Arne Duncan, calling on the the Department of Education to immediately discharge the federal loans of at least some students who who attended Corinthian. This wasn't a toothless press stunt. The department, the senators noted, had the power to cancel federal loans for students who attended institutions that violated their rights. In fact, they pointed out the department's federal loan agreements with students go as far as to spell this out, if in fine print. In some cases, you may assert, as a defence against collection of your loan, that the school did something wrong or failed to do something that it should have done. Earlier this month, the Attorney-General of Massachusetts made a request similar to that of the Senator's. A spokeswoman said that the Education Department shares the commitment of the Senators and the Massachusetts Attorney-General to upholding the rights of students who may have been harmed by the actions of institutions that participate in federal student aid programs. She said the Department has been in touch with Senator Warren and the Attorney-General's staff and is working on a response. The Education Department doesn't have jurisdiction over private loans, (laughs) which amount to far less than federal ones. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which aims to protect consumers from private debt troubles, is seeking full relief of the private Corinthian debt, but is meanwhile urging people to continue to pay off the loans. The debt strike is at once an unusual and obvious protest strategy in response to the Corinthian debt. The current and former Corinthian students participating in the strike who call themselves the Corinthian 15, Heine is amongst their most outspoken members, are publicly refusing to pay both their federal and private debt. With respect to the federal debt, they plan to file legal documents with the Education Department and with the services of their federal loans that assert the little-known right Warren and her colleagues describe in their letter. 
The strike is the result of an alliance between the students and an offshoot of the Occupy movement known as the Debt Collective. Last year, activists affiliated with the Debt Collective became acquainted with Corinthian students through a campaign to buy and abolish large amounts of student private student debt, a stunt which I covered that was meant to shed light on the magnitude of, of the student debt problem. Together, the debt collective organisers and some of the students came up with the idea for the current action, drawing on some of the power in numbers theories behind the labour movement. Debt collective volunteers, among them lawyers and people who had to who had dealt with the press, are giving legal, financial and media support to the strikers, along with the training in skills like financial literacy. In addition to committing time and energy, the strikers are assuming considerable financial and social risks, lower credit scores, embarrassment of making it publicly known that they don't intend to repay their loans. More than a fifth of borrowers of federal student loans go into default, but people who default tend not to announce their status publicly. Anne Larson, one of the main debt collective organisers, talked to hundreds of Corinthian students, many of whom were put off by the potential financial repercussions of striking, not to mention the time, the time commitment and the embarrassment. But she said that she hopes and expects that when the first 15 strikers go public, others who have attended Corinthian campuses will be encouraged to join in. The stakes are high for the education department. Corinthian has said that its students have taken out more than a billion dollars in federal loans annually. Kevin Carey, a fellow at the New American Foundation who studies higher education, told me that the education department is likely wary of setting a precedent that could inspire students who attended other troubled institutions also to seek loan forgiveness. Drawing legally and logically defensible lines around this situation will be tricky for them, he told me. Still, Kerry said, in this particular case, I think there's a pretty strong argument that they ought to forgive a lot of the debt. Heine recently began working as a home health care nurse, although, she said, only after a five-hour interview explaining why my school doesn't reflect my knowledge or patient care. When I asked why she was willing to make such a public statement about not repaying her debt, she told me that she hopes to influence policy changes that would help future students. In history, in the civil rights movement, if everyone was afraid of their own personal repercussions, no progress would ever have been made. Well, isn't she a brave girl? And uh, thank you very much, Dale. Now, Robert uh, may not be with us today, but he wants to have his two pennies worth of, of uh, his opinion. So we'll, uh, if you'll just wait a few, a few minutes, we'll have him on the phone. Well, Robert, you've got news and views that you're bringing over over with, even though you're not here in the studio. What did you want yes, to um, tell? Yes, I'm sorry for that, Jean. I'm out on the road doing some research on behalf of the DOGS program and come up with a few interesting things that I thought I'd like to share with our listeners. Um, just as a couple of things. Firstly, um, listeners might not be aware that there's been a, an election in Queensland lately and um, there's been a change of government. And I'd just like to introduce the listeners to the new Shadow Education Minister in Queensland. Do you know who it is, Jane? No? Oh, it is a funny place. It is indeed. Um, I've been doing a bit of research out here on the road, and I've discovered that the new Shadow Minister for Education and Training in Queensland is a fellow called Tim Mander. 
Now, Tim Mand has been a lot of things in the past. He was a rugby league referee, amongst other things. But Tim Mander was, in fact, for six years, the CEO of Scripture Union Queensland. Mm. So this is the shadow education minister in Queensland. So the Labor Party. Labor Party. No, 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 no. He's he's in the Liberal Party. Oh, oh, sorry. Shadow education minister now. Right, right. Because there's been a change of government. Mm. Um, So Labor's now in power in Queensland. But the shadow education minister, a Liberal Party member... um, is the ex-CEO of Scripture Union uh, Queensland, um, and he's the Shadow Education Minister. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Um, having done a bit of digging on Tim Mander, I've been to his website, and he does not mention this at all. He doesn't seem to be very interested in telling the world about this, although, of course, when you do do something, the rest of the world tends to find out about it, especially if you do a bit of digging. He says on his website, this is Tim Mander, he says he was the CEO of Australia's fastest growing youth and children's organisation. That's rather interesting, isn't it? I've always found this sort of separation of religion and state to be a particularly interesting issue. Obviously, in Victoria, over over the last few years, we've had ex-head of the Catholic Education Office as our education minister. Mm. And it just, to me, seems quite worrying. Mm. Well, of course, people can have their own um, religious beliefs, Robert. It's just a question of when they get them mixed up with uh, the private gets mixed up with the public and they don't understand that there is a difference between the two. That, that's the problem, isn't it? Well, I do think it's the problem because at the moment, as the Shadow Education Minister, the one thing he's interested in promoting um, as Shadow Education Minister is a support for a chaplaincy program Um, which is a fundraiser at his local school, which is at the Everton Park State School. So as Education Minister, his first action as the Shadow Education Minister, I should say, is to go all all out and tell everyone that they should give lots of money to support the chaplaincy program in his Mm. local school. Mm. One would have thought education in Queensland had more important issues to deal with than, than such things as that. Well, I would have thought that they would be looking for any kind of funding to put up the schools that have been uh, laid, you know, just laid waste by the cyclones. Uh, they've got really big practical problems. But coming down to New South Wales, you've been uh, very interested to, to to do some research on one particular school called Knox Grammar, which has been in the news lately. Indeed, that is true. Um, Knox Grammar, in um, the leafy suburbs of, of, of Sydney has been a prestigious school for a number of years. Now, currently, um, the administration and the parents and the students and, indeed, some of the teachers have been at the Royal Commission. Oh, they're um, in damage control now. Well, on on, uh, relating to childhood sexual abuse. Um, I would just like to point out a couple of things. Um, The first is kind of tragic and a bit humorous. Um, one of the teachers who was accused of abusing children sexually and convicted of abusing children at that school and has gone to jail as a result of that conviction for abuse of children at that school, um, prior to his conviction, um, there was a memorial. There was a memorial placed at the school. It was a gate, and on the gate... It mentioned the name of this convicted pedophile um, with the quote, 
um, he has touched us all. Which is sort of ironic and funny, but um, it turns out that the Knox Grammar School has indeed taken down the plaque which says those words. And at the moment, the school's in particular damage control. Um, separate and despite that, um, having done a little bit of research, I have discovered that the Knox Grammar School, on an annual basis, this is every year, receives funding from taxpayers, that's you and me, dear listeners, um, to the value of between $6.6 and $7 million per annum. That is every year. We, the taxpayers, have been supporting this organisation ever since several years after the dogs case back in the back in the early 80s. Mate. Now it occurs to me, um, it occurs to me that I um, am in the process of handing over money to this school to organise its business in the way that it does, um, and the way it organises is that its business is coming out very clearly in the Royal Commission on Childhood Sexual Abuse. The way it organises its business is to hide, hide criminal offences in a systematic and what I would call deeply reprehensible way. And I'm actually not very keen um, on giving money to this school. I don't think as a taxpayer I should be forced to do so. And I think they should pay the money back. And I don't think any more money should be forthcoming to that particular school because it's failed in its duties of governance. It's failed in its duty of accountability. And while it might have succeeded in separating out children on the basis of class and income, I don't actually think that's particularly worthwhile use of my taxpayers' money. Yep. Well, yes, uh, ditto to all of that, uh, Robert. Is there anything else that you'd like to um, discuss with our listeners? Oh, yes, indeed. Um, coming down to Victoria, again, having done some research on several issues, one of the things that's come up is the Fairness in Religion in Schools organisation, who we've had on the Dogs Program many times in the past, who are interested in um, stopping special religious instruction um, going on in state schools. Because, as our listeners probably know, and I know you certainly do, Gina Dahl, that um, state schools should be free, secular, universal and compulsory. And special religious instruction being funded by the government in state schools is something that has basically, I don't know, perverted those original aims of state education. Now, the Fairness and Religion in Schools group um, have been conducting a micro-campaign. They've been talking to parents and parents have been talking to them to try to find out what's going on in special religious instruction in Victorian schools. And... Even though there has been departmental directives to say that special religious instruction um, in Victorian state schools should be what's called opt-in, that is, parents are asked if they wish to um, have their children in special religious instructions as opposed to parents being told that they will be in special religious instruction unless they say they don't. Um, there's been a very, very mixed uptake of what's going on in each individual school. I'd just probably like to alert our listeners to a couple of particular small, or not small, but I mean for the parents and the schools involved, they're quite large issues, but some sort of very specific issues relating to certain schools. Now, Knox Gardens Primary School has been sent an electronic message to parents by the school itself, advising that finally they will not be proceeding with special, special religious instruction this year 
because not enough students have been opted in. So this is happening all around Victoria, this opt-in process, um, means that parents who are not interested in having their special uh, religious instruction sort of put at their children in schools, those parents um, don't have to have to opt out and so therefore the interest levels are going down. But there's been a couple of other issues in particular schools where this process hasn't been clearly articulated to the parents of the school. Now, I want to draw our listeners' attention to the Karumbara Primary School website, uh, which has apologised, indeed, for a Christmas hamper raffle to raise the levels of participation in SRI. What happened before Christmas is that a state school organised a Christmas hamper raffle to raise money and get enrolments for special religious instructions. Not, not the, not the um, churches. The school did this themselves. And there is, in fact, an apology from the Corrinborough Primary School website and indeed a message from the principal. And I'd just like to share um, what it says. Uh, the principal of this particular primary school says, today our school was made aware of an issue that arose late last year relating to how the school distributes consent forms for special religious instruction. Due to the low return rates, a hamper raffle was offered to encourage families to return their consent forms. The principal was advised that this offer and the newsletter item promoting the offer were inappropriate and were not in line with education department policy. Now, 17% of families consented to SRI and the school made the decision not to offer the program this year. With such a low response rate, the school was not able to guarantee appropriate supervision and separate learning spaces for all students, which is why it did not go ahead. The school, and indeed the principal, regret that the raffle caused concern for some families. And of course, if any family has concerned, they're very welcome to give the principal a call. Now, this I think is some evidence that finally, certainly in some cases, if parents, if the people involved in these schools um, actually get up and say, hang on, this isn't right, there is now a political climate where um, things can change. And I think this is a small sign of hope when it comes to the mixing of religion and secular principles in state schools in Victoria. So a sort of a good news, bad news story, Jean, about what's going on in schools in Victoria. Yes, thank you very much, um, Robert. Oh, that's all very interesting. I noticed too, if you've been following the um, the Save Our Schools website, which uh, places more mm-hmm. emphasis upon Equity, equity issues um, than it does, I believe, on on just the very basic principles uh, of public education. But they actually have been doing some very interesting research and their research is being taken up by the mainstream press and also uh, they were invited to speak at Australian Education Union Conference this year. I found the speech by the new uh, leader, the new president of interest. Her name is Karina Haythorpe. Um, she's the federal president and the annual conference was, uh, was held on the 20th of February 2015. And um, she gives... Uh, a big thank you to Angelo Gavrilatis, who, as you know, we've often had on our program uh, because of his his battle, his ongoing battle for 
public education. He came from the New South Wales Group uh, uh, Union. She comes from South Australia. And we wish her well, of course, and hope that uh, she will be as strong as Angelo Gavrilatis. But she did go and say a great deal about the value of public education and she pointed out to all of the people at the conference that they were there because they believed in public education. And we know, she said, that our preschools, our schools and our TAFE institutes change lives the way teachers changed hers. So she comes from the state system and we need a lot more like her fighting for the public system. Uh, Like a lot of the people in the public school groups today, of course she is uh, on about Gonski and about uh, improving equity in our schools. I'm not sure that she understands in the same way as I'm not sure that the uh, Save Our Schools people have yet cottoned on to the very simple fact that you can't have equity if you give taxpayers' money to inequitable institutions and institutions that choose children on the basis of religion or ability to pay or the political views of their parents or any other um, uh, access uh, requirement. They cannot... uh, lead towards a more equitable society. They, in fact, lead you to an inequitable society. Um, And uh, I don't think that they have um, bitten that bullet yet. Um, They did. The uh, AEU did have a very strong anti-state aid stance, but I think their emphasis upon Gonski is leading them a bit away from that. But Angelo Gavrilatis was always strong, so we'll, we'll keep a watching brief on... Karina Haythorpe and just see how strong she really is. Uh, she's certainly got a problem trying to step into Angela Gavrilatis. Uh... Some very big shoes. Yes, well, we'll have to get her on the program and yes. see what her views are. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, Jean, it's just a very, that's a very, very simple, it's a very, very simple premise that so many places around the world have worked out. It just hasn't happened in Australia. And the premise is you cannot have an equitable society if you do not have an equitable education system. We do not have an equitable education system, so inequity will grow. It's just a very simple principle that's been worked out in so many countries around the world. But I hear again and again that this can't happen in Australia because of what people would term the political realities. Well, I have to say to you, I'll have to say to you, Jean, that the political realities in Australia are shifting very quickly at the moment. We do live, we do live in interesting times, and questions of equity are front and centre. Well, um, I mean, I just want... uh, changes have taken place. They took place in the uh, 19th century. Uh, the denominational system was put back into its place and state aid was withdrawn for 80 years. Um, it's not yet 80 years that they've had uh, state aid and people are questioning just what is going on when a place like Knox Glamour can receive the state aid that they do and get away with actually um, having teachers with uh, criminal records. Uh, one just wonders about well, all this. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, as with all things, it's certainly true with education, that any system has to be accountable, effective and efficient. In that order, you cannot be efficient unless you're effective. You cannot be effective unless you're accountable. And Knox Gunner in particular, as it turns out, is the opposite. 
it is efficient. It is efficient in the terms of creating an inequitable system. If you cough up half a million dollars to educate your child, you will expect and probably receive some form of, well, what is, what is it you say, Gene? A, a first-class ticket to jobs and a first-class ticket to heaven or something like that? Well, but I don't know. No it sounds to me as if you get a first-class ticket to a very strange form of bonding. Yes, I, I, I think that's probably true as well. But is it an effective? I mean, Northcombe is not interested in effectively educating the children of Australia. It's, it's interested in, in cherry-picking and taking people who have money or indeed offer, offering scholarships to people who will boost its results. It's not an effective education institution. And, of course... And um... above all, above all, it's not accountable. <laughs> it's just not accountable. I mean... The figures I'm quoting in terms of the millions of dollars it receives per year from federal and state government hasn't been updated since 2012. So the figures I'm quoting are actually from three years ago. Yes, now, well, access to those, access to, to, to current and contemporary figures for the amount of money that goes to Knox Grammar School are impossible to find out. And so, therefore, it is unaccountable for the money that it's spending, which is just a terrible thing in terms of the distribution of public funds for the education of children. Well, I it's, think that we can have... world turned on its head. Yeah, we have to thank uh, Ms Gillard for actually giving us what figures are available on the My School website. Um, and we never did yes. get the full figures because the private schools uh, refused to give us their assets and endowments. And I think the main... Really, the main problem here is... Uh, let's spell it out, the Roman Catholic school system, which is not accountable, which is a law unto itself, a state within a state. And uh, uh, we've just had an example of at least the, the Jewish rabbis um, resigning. They may not have apologised for what happened in their schools, but they at least resigned. I'm not aware of Cardinal Pell or anybody else actually resigning in the Catholic education sector. Um, and, uh, oh, no, not at all. And, and, um, and that, I think, would be classified as inverted commas, the political realities of Australia. And as I well, say to you, Indian, these political realities are changing and people are agreeing with us. We've, we've been putting this radio show to air for years and years and years and what we're saying is no longer out on the edge. It's, what we're saying is smack bang in the middle of what many Australians feel should be the right way. Well, I think the appropriate way to educate the children of Australia. I think a large number of of certainly people in the education area are looking at Finland, and they're also looking at places like Canada, and they're also um, telling us that in America there is a big questioning going on about the levels of inequity, which are very bad for an economic system. Even if people want to talk economics and see education as some kind of commodity, the way a private uh, sector does it doesn't work. Uh, there's wastage of money, there's wastage of students, there's wastage all the way along the line, and um, uh, they are questioning this uh, all over. Yes, and there, of course, is uh, oh, look, I mean, a concern even, from below. Even in the um, vocational training area, there was a very interesting report on Four Corners on Monday oh. relating to fraud, just, just straight-out fraud, as it relates to taxpayers' funds going to um, employment agencies, people who are designed to get jobs for people who don't have them. And what was mentioned, it was mentioned in passing in the program, but I think it's the next big scandal, is that the for-profit companies 
and indeed not for-profit companies, which are the Catholic Church and the Salvation Army, that are involved in this process, also own the training institutions which the employment companies send them to. They also own these for the, for the vocational training that's supposed to be designed to help these kids and these people and these adults to get jobs. Now, what's happening is private, for-profit educational institutions are having students sent to them by employment agencies and the educational institution and the employment agencies are in fact the same company. Now this is millions and millions of dollars being spent by the taxpayer to pay a company to send people to an educational institution as part of the same company to make more money. There is now evidence to suggest that these private educational vocational companies aren't doing their job. They're <laughs> yes. just taking the money and they don't and they don't care whether they pass or fail or indeed if the training is, is appropriate for the individual. Yes, it's well, all if, just yeah. a privatized nightmare. That's correct, and it's the market. It is economy. not efficient, it is not effective and it's absolutely unaccountable and it's just well, I've got a really interesting story here that you'll, you'll enjoy, Robert. It's from America, and it's about charter schools. And, of course, these charter schools, these so-called independent public schools, are what Mr Pine is thinking of imposing upon our public system. And I'm looking here. It was sent to me. Thank you, for Rolf. I get some very interesting material on my email. When a wildlife rehab centre regulates charter schools schools inside the wild world of charter regulation. And I find out here that um, charter schools, which are taxpayer funded in the United States, are privately run schools freed from many of the rules that apply to the traditional public schools. And what's less widely understood is that there are very few hard and fast rules for how the regulators are charged with overseeing the charter schools and how they're supposed to do the job. And a lot of them are making it up as they go along. And they're known as authoriser, authorisers and they're so-called charter regulators and they have the power to decide which charter schools should be allowed to open and which are performing so badly that they ought to close. Well, of course, they're not uh, deciding that they're performing badly because they're hardly authorising them. How on earth can a wildlife rehab centre uh, authorise or evaluate what is happening in a charter school and it's a regulatory mishmash and that obviously is what's happened in with the job the job groups that are we the job seeker groups that we are looking at here in Australia now by the way Robert um, Mrs Rudd was one of the first people who were part of the privatisation of that public system in the 90s and she made a million, many millions out of it. But um, we're now having the same kind of suggestion from Mr Pine for our public education system and we have to stop it at all costs. At least for the moment, the um, public money that goes into public education is more or less accounted for and comes under the Auditor-General. But private education is a different matter and the big bureaucracies of the uh, big multinational corporations like 
the Roman Catholic uh, corporations are a law unto themselves. They are states within states. Uh, You're dealing with a very nasty version of plutocracy, which deals in the end with lots and lots of corruption. We see it. We saw it in Russia. We actually are seeing it, but we're not being told about it, in the Ukraine and um, in failed states. That's what happens. You get eventually to a failed state because the corruption and uh, the use of taxpayers' funds and also the taxation system is uh, in trouble. Uh, so yes, it's not a not a happy um, not a happy future, and we've got to stop it from happening. We have to fight, indeed, which is what we do here on the Dogs Program. But um, I'm going to go back and do some more research, Jean. It's been lovely to have a chat to you. Um, I'm just going to catch up with our audience probably in the studio next week. But um, until then, for me, it's bye for now. Thanks, Robert. Well, you've been listening to the dogs and uh, thanks for sticking with us for the full hour and uh, we hope you'll be back with us next week at 12 noon. But if you want to find out more about us, try our website www.adogs.info and bye for now.
Ein Nö- 